Hello, and welcome to The Lee Show. As always, I'm your host, Lee Bressler. Tonight, I had the amazing honor to sit down with Jordan Tassa. Jordan was a member of the 82nd Airborne Infantry in the U.S. Army. He served two tours of duty in Afghanistan, and he fought bravely for our country. After I recorded the last episode about Afghanistan, I felt inspired to speak to Jordan. It's easy for me and for all of us to comment on the war from the comfort and safety of being at home. But I wanted to understand the experience firsthand from someone who was on the ground. Jordan and I discussed what it's like to become a soldier, the war in Afghanistan, our withdrawal from the country, and many other topics. Without further ado, let's get to the interview. I'm here with, uh, with Jordan Tassa. Pronounce it Jordan Tassa? Tassa? Close enough. <laughs> uh, how, how would you pronounce it? Uh, it's Tassa. Tassa. Okay. Uh, I'm here with Jordan Tassa. And um, Jordan uh, was in Afghanistan. And uh, first of all, thank you for your service. And second of all, um, maybe could you just tell me about who you are? When when did you enlist? What was that process like? Like kind of go back to the beginning. How did you choose which part of the military you joined? Like I, I, I wasn't in the military. I don't really know anything about that. So So what was that like? Yeah, so I uh, enlisted in 2011, went to basic at Fort Benning, Georgia. When did I start? I think July, finished in August or September. And from then I got sent to the 82nd Airborne. Uh, we did some pre-deployment training. We were deploying that in February of 2012. Uh, so yeah, they did some training out in California, out in Death Valley. Went back and then pretty much deployed from there. Um, we went to, what was it? The Argandab River Valley in Afghanistan, which is southern Afghanistan. From there, after a few months, moved over to Zari District, which was the birthplace of the Taliban. So that was fairly interesting. Um, from I mean, we did a nine-month deployment there and did a second deployment in 2004. So you were there. Uh, well, wait, before we get into this, so how did you choose the army like what what makes you say i want to join the army i don't want to join the marines or or the navy or something like that i mean honestly i mean a lot of the other branches they have like wish lists so you can kind of you put your top five jobs you want to do and you might get it and you might not um, the army was pretty much straight up forward with what you're going to do and that's pretty much the biggest reason why i joined the army i didn't want to you know put my number one job down which was you know sitting behind a desk for four or five years got it Interesting. That's um, makes sense. Yeah. Um, and how old were you when you enlisted? Uh, Nineteen. And what? When you were in training, did people talk about counterinsurgency? Did they talk about like? Did you learn about the concept of counterinsurgency? Like, was that part of the training, or was it just like, you know, get get fit? learn to follow orders like what what was that like uh i mean no not really in, in basic or even aait which is you know we get more detail into infantry uh, i didn't really learn any of that until we got to our unit we were deploying point got point it. operations and all and and what is that process like like some you just sort of learn it on the job or someone like sits you down and says like here is general petraeus's manual on counterinsurgency like read this um, I mean, it's a little bit of both. Um, call them like death by PowerPoint, I guess. You sit there right. for hours and watch PowerPoints. Um, but I think, I mean, most of it where we learned like hands-on was 
was our pre-deployment training out in California. Uh, they'll get you in like mock villages filled with actual like Afghan, Iraqi, uh, like they used to be contractors or whatever. And we gave them a job out there to pretty much role play. Um, you know, you'd mm. walk into a village, you'd meet, you'd meet the village elder and the Afghan police and all that. And we just learned to have a, they're called like key leader engagements. You sit down with the, the village elder and discuss what they need, what they need from us, a bunch of different stuff, you know, stuff like that. Any but, language training or is it just the whole thing's in English and they, you just hope that there's an, an interpreter there? Um, over there in California, I mean, they obviously uh, spoke like Pashtun and Dari. Um, but I mean, no, I learned it all from, from actually deploying to Afghanistan. And, you know, it wasn't any fluent that I could keep it. You could. Well, do you still <laughs> yeah. remember any of it or no? <sighs> Just the bad words, you know? <laughs> right. Right. You learn how to swear and that's about it. Um, do you think you were good at that part of it? Like the interpersonal sort of like, I'm going to walk into a village and try to negotiate something here side of um, things? I mean, that wasn't really specifically my role. Um, okay. That was more for like our platoon sergeants or platoon leaders to go down there and sit there and talk and discuss, discuss things. You know, I, I was a, my first point of private and they probably don't want some private sitting down with a 60, 70 year old man discussing, you know, <laughs> village <Right>. politics. <laughs> and, and what, what, what are they negotiating? Is it like, Hey, we'll build you a school. If you point out the Taliban guys, like what, what's that discussion like? Um, I mean, a lot of it was, yeah, I mean, building wells, schools, roads, stuff like that, as long as, you know, they give us a heads up on what's going on in their village, tell us where, you know, the IEDs are, stuff like that. Once the village starts, you know, talking with us a little bit, you know, get a little bit more intense. But for the most part, yeah, it was, we'll give you something if you give us something. And was there ever a sense, like, we're telling you we're going to build you a school or a hospital, but we know you're going to use it as like a mosque or a madrasa or something like that. Or was it just, you know, you say you need a hospital and we're building you a hospital. Kind of. Like, did I you mean, feel they were honest with you? Oh, hell no, no, uh -huh. no, 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 not one bit. Um, I mean, there's a few guys that uh, supported the Americans, but you know, they got to play both sides. They, they, you know, they start helping out the Americans too much. The Taliban to come in at night and, and do their work, you know. So is that is that how the Taliban keep control is it's just the threat of terror. And and so you can't help out too much because you're afraid of the Taliban and what they're going to do to you. Is that the idea? Yeah, for the most part. Um, I mean, there is definitely people that would just, you know, 100 percent support them. Right. But I, I would say the majority of the people are, you know, playing both sides out of fear. You know, it's kind of interesting to think about because the whole premise of like our military would square off against any other organized national military in the world. Mm -hmm. Right. Or, or just about any and probably any. And yeah. but it's it's very hard to square off against like a bunch of guys who only come out at night and they're sort of loosely organized and it like that's a lot harder to fight. And I suppose the way you do it is by adopting their tactics, which are not very kind, but like you just have to out terrorize what they can do, right? During World War II, the, the Germans did that, right? Nobody, nobody screwed with them. There wasn't 
much of a resistance because they knew you knew that if you if you tried to resist them, even if you disagreed with them, if you tried to resist them, they would just kill everyone in town. And so I guess the Taliban does that, right? If you try to resist them too hard or you try to sell them out to the Americans, they're going to kill everyone in town. And and we're not willing to do that, right? We're not going to go kill the entire town. So no. it's it's a it's a tough fight. Yeah. Uh yeah, it's pretty hard to win a war when you don't know who you're fighting. Right. That's interesting. And so how long were you deployed on your first deployment there? To uh, seven, eight months, I believe. Seven or eight months. And what it, what's your schedule like when you're doing that? Like, are you, are you busy seven days a week? Do you get days off? Like, how does that work? Yeah, there's, there's really no schedule. I mean, we had to do a mandatory uh, three patrols a day per platoon. You know, every once in a while, we'll get a big mission week or something like that. But we just, you know, you got to keep that presence in your area of operations, security tight. Um, and when you patrol, for, is that on is that on foot or is that in a vehicle? Yeah, for the most part, we were a, a light infantry unit, so we were walking around, walking around into the villages, getting, getting good face with you know village elders and townspeople and stuff like that. And the the vehicles you did use were are these Humvees? Are these MRAPs? Like what was the? Uh, we had for the most part MATVs. Which, you did. So they were already uh, past the MRAPs, but for the uh, we part. did have MRAPs. Uh, you did. A few of them. But yeah, we had those. The Afghan army had uh, uh, Humvees for the most part, or those Toyota pickups. You know, there's this um, there's this sort of narrative that, uh, and I, I don't know how true it is. It it seems credible, and I, I've read like interviews with guys who, who you know who were in logistics who said it was true, but that. There was this narrative that we were deliberately trying to lose Humvees and uh, that we'd sort of, you know, we'd get a delivery of 14 of them or something. And then you leave them outside with the keys in the ignition and you come out in the morning and there's like, you know, three of them left. And it's like, oh, shit, I guess we got to order a bunch more Humvees now. And that it was all sort of, you know, to try to lose a bunch of stuff, either to bribe the locals or so that we'd have an excuse to buy a whole bunch more stuff. Do you think there's any credibility to that? Honestly, I, I it's the first time I'm hearing about it. Um, okay, it's not hard to steal a Humvee. It doesn't you don't need a key or an MRAP, MAV, no key, so you can just hop you just in get and in, in. You mean? Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I mean, there wasn't. There was definitely you know Afghan soldiers stealing a bunch of shit from us all the time. I really? Go to the extent of you know multi million dollar vehicles, weapons, but and they were stealing and, stuff for sure. Yeah. What about? logistics one of the things i've always wondered about a war is like how much of it is logistics in terms of just moving fuel and ammo or something from point a to point b and resupplying what was that like presumably you're not using that much ammunition in this across the entire war so like what what was that resupply concept like logistics were there things that were hard to get or where it ever felt really tight? Like, are we going to get more of this in time? No, I mean, they got that pretty well organized. We were from the main bases. You, you got supply units and they go down to our, to like our combat outposts. And they'll resupply there. And then from there, they'll come out to us, to our, our outposts, you know, 15 to resupply us on ammo. Um, but no, I didn't really have any issues with that. Uh, Food was sometimes an issue to get some food out there, but other than that, like they just couldn't get enough food to where you guys were. You mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we were moving around a lot, so 
Huh. But other other than that, I mean, it it was, we were pretty well supplied. Uh, was it was it comfortable? Like, what is it? I, I I don't know. I mean, I I see in the movies, right? It's like a bunch of guys that are sweaty and covered in dirt all the time, and they're in the middle of the desert, and it's like miserable. Is that accurate, or is that just like plays in Hollywood and it's not real life? Um, I mean, for the infantrymen, yeah, it's pretty accurate. I mean, I slept on a cot for eight months and right under the sun and some moon dust. <laughs> Didn't take a shower for 59 days was Holy the longest smokes. I went on my first deployment. I, mean, I, um, I, I have a pair of shitty. underpants that, uh, <laughs> that they say when I bought them, they're like the tag, it says that they have this anti-stink technology in the underpants and that you can wear them for like 21 days straight without <laughs> washing them, which I, by the way, don't do that. I, that's not a good <laughs> idea, but you know, it's even that wouldn't have lasted you 59 days. Holy smokes. Um, Wow. Yeah, your so, uh, your skin after that, you got salt crystals all over you. And it's I would imagine pretty nasty. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> um. So you came home after seven or eight months, and then what's that like? Like you come home, do you still get paid while you're at home? Are you in training? Like what what do you do after your deployment ends? You go get a job. How's that work? No. So I was in the active military uh, in the National Guard. Yeah, you go home and go back to your normal civilian life. Um, Besides, you know, once or twice a month. Okay. But I went back to uh, Fort Bragg. We had about a week downtime to kind of hang out and drink some beer and get back to normal life and then back into training again. And what was the training like the second time around? Did it feel like it was something more advanced? Like, had you gotten promoted? How how does that work? How's it different? Um, I, I mean, definitely a lot more advanced. I mean, we had shit probably about six months up to deployment, they were just handing out ammo and gear and equipment to go train for, you know, a couple of weeks at a time out. I mean, I think one day we had a full Connex filled with ammo of 5.56 and 7.62. And I mean, we were shooting close to 30, 40,000 rounds a day per. Holy never, smokes. Never been able to do that, especially before my first deployment. Who refills but, yeah. all your clips? Like your, your thumbs would get bloody trying to do that yourself, right? Um, well, I mean, we have like speed reloaders. Uh, I was a saw gunner, so I, my, my, uh, my drum was already loaded up for me, ready to go. Um, what is a saw gunner? Um, so it's a belt fed machine gun. Got it. Um, is that like a quick Google tells me that's an M249. Is that, is that yeah, M249? Yep. Uh-huh. And so that when you're firing that you're, you're what's like, what's the use case for that? weapon you're not that's not just handheld i assume right no you walk around with that um uh it helps your team move under firefights you know you got to suppress the enemy and you got two saw gunners in the squad so you know you're just laying lead down range letting letting the rest of the two move uh keep the enemy hooked zone and got it so it's like cover fire or suppressing fire i guess right? suppressing fire yep right okay interesting um was it a good weapon oh i loved it really <laughs> Oh yeah. It was my baby. Interesting. And is it, I mean, again, I'm, I'm defaulting to like Hollywood cause that's my frame of reference here, but is it like a, you know, you sit there in, in basic training and you're learning to like clean and care for the thing and, and take care of it all the time. Is that realistic? Yeah, you got a, in basic, they, uh, um, I mean, we have a bunch of different weapon systems, but you know, usually around, I mean, you got your M4, your saw or your M249, your, M240, your 50 cal, 
Mark 19, and those are pretty much the main weapons that the infantry uses. And by the end of basic, you got to learn how to break that whole thing down piece by piece and put it back together. You know? Huh? How much did air support, aircraft, drones? Let, let's talk through all the different types of of aircraft. Like, did how much did that play a part in what you were doing? Like, would you be out on patrol and say, like, we need air support? Like, is that a is that a concept? Is that a real thing? Yeah. So you you have a they're called um, forward observers, and they they're not infantrymen, but they get attached to infantry in the platoons. So pretty much, yeah, they they uh, they have communications with the pilots, um, and if we need them, then we'll he'll uh, they'll call them in. Sometimes okay. other platoon or other companies have priority over over air support, depending on what type of mission they're doing. So sometimes we call them in and no one would be there for us. But for the most part, we can get a couple, at least a couple of helicopters in. Uh-huh. Could you tell, this is going to sound dumb, right? Because they're not wearing like a uniform or a badge or something that says, I am Taliban. But like after time spent there, can you figure out like who's Taliban and who's not? Was there like some tell, some some giveaway that you can kind of spot them? Or is it just... It's, oh, yeah. They're all very low contrast because you can't tell them from some guy in the village. No, I mean, it's, it took a while, but you start knowing, you know, like, for example, a lot of Afghans over there wore sandals. You see a guy running around with Nike Freeze. He's probably Taliban. Because, <laughs> because he's got the resources to buy those or because he's No, because they're away. good running shoes. <laughs> right. I mean, for the most part, they're usually uh military age males from 15 to 30 somewhere in there just the way they look at you when you're walking by you just got this feeling just from right you, know, you just you just know we also have uh it's called the i think it's called like the hide system that takes pictures of uh, uh people's eyeballs and if they pop up on the computer then if they've done anything in the past or they've been you know a suspicious person will mark them in there and if they pop up on there then Pretty, it pretty much just tells us what they've done in the past. So it's like facial recognition, you're saying? Yep. That's very cool. Huh. Interesting. So how much were you ever involved with training the Afghan military or Afghan police forces? Was that something you ever worked on? Before big missions, we would do, you know, like mock drills, uh, uh, sand tables with the Afghan army and show them exactly what we're going to be doing today, how we're going to run this operation and stuff like that. But f- for the most part, not a whole lot of training. I mean, they'd cut, we would have to go out with an Afghan uh, force, Afghan army force. You had to because you just needed their local faces or like what? That and um, we were trying to get them to, you know, start leading from the front, trying to transition over from uh, uh, you know, we kicking down doors to them starting to kick down doors before us. Right. Uh, and we weren't allowed into mosques. They were, you know, a, a huge part of that. Uh, the Taliban like to uh, hide their weapon cache in mosques. So, you know, us Americans aren't allowed in there. So just get some Afghan army in there and check it out. Huh. That's interesting. How often did you find Taliban weapons and go, oh, these look familiar. And it was actually American gear that had been swiped or siphoned off to them. Not that often. Probably okay. actually never. No. Really? I don't think we ever found any. So who was, who was equipping them? Like, where, where were they getting their, their weapons from? Um, I mean, they're getting a lot of their we- weapons from Pakistan and from selling heroin. 
I mean, they're, right. they make most of their money from the heroin. fields and creating heroin. Right. Were you ever involved with anything related to either, you know, tracking down the heroin, tracking down the poppy, cutting it uh, down, anything like that? Like, was that something that you were ever involved with? I mean, not directly, but we we ran into weapons caches and found, I don't know, 30, 40 pounds of heroin in a bag. Um, we were on some operations as well to burn poppy fields. Um, that didn't really turn out too well with our coin operation. <laughs> Pissed off a lot of locals. Right. Um, I mean, that's... Right, that's how they're making their money. Their main, right? Yeah, it's, I yeah. mean, that's their main source of income. Did you ever have DEA guys from the U.S. that would come along with you who were like, hey, will, will you help us out on something drug-related? Or they just, that was, that was not part of what you were doing? No, no, never ran into any DEA guys. Okay. Um, and then your second deployment, tell me about that. Like, what, what was it like? How was it different from the first time around? Um, honestly, I can't really get into that one. Okay, fair can't enough. Can't talk about it. <laughs> yep. Okay. That's, that's fine. That. No, we don't, we don't need to go there. That's okay. So how, how about this? How long was your second deployment? Um, and then when you came back, is that it? It's like, do they say, do you want a third deployment? Like, how does that work? Um, I was actually supposed to get out, um, probably four or five months before my second deployment. And then they gave me an option to extend just for that deployment. So I did that. But I mean, it was pretty much the same deal. It was a little bit longer. I think it was eight or nine months that time. But yeah, same deal. Got Come it. Back. But my whole thing out of that was uh, when we got back, I was just out, out processing. That was, that was it. Then you're done. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. And what is that like? Like they, do you, do you have to give a minimum time commitment? And then it's like, once you've passed that, then it's just like, okay, I'm done. I quit. Like what, yeah, what if is you want that? To, you can get out right there. Um, I was lucky enough that we had a deployment, so I didn't have to commit to another, you know, three and a half years. I only had to throw on another year onto my deployment or onto my my contract. Um, and and then it, it, you're considered what retired? Like what what's the term? Discharged, I guess. Uh, yeah, dis or honorably discharged. Honorably um, discharged. Or you okay. can get you know against trouble, you can dishonorable or whatever. Right. But yeah. What what gets you at dishonorable? That's like being disobedient, shooting someone in the face? Uh, like what, 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 what's that? I mean, what, multiple different things. I mean, commit any felony crimes, do something it's, bad it's, overseas, something like it's, that. It's I mean, big stuff though, right? It's not. Uh, yeah, for the most part. I mean, mm -hmm. it depends how, how much people they need in the military and what they let you get away with. But I mean, if the military's got a lot or way too many people in there at the moment, it doesn't take much to get kicked out. You've seen on the news, you've seen uh, the same stuff I've seen about the withdrawal, the exit from Afghanistan. What's your sense of that? You think it's like, is it surprising? Is it going well? Is it going poorly? How do you, how do you interpret it? Um, I mean, I'm, I'm not surprised. I mean, I think last time we talked, I told you about, you know, I think it's Taliban going to take over the country pretty, pretty fucking quick. And they did. Um, I'm just a little upset on how we, how we did it, how we left. I know for a fact we were leaving a lot of interpreters that worked for us for years over there, and they're probably as we speak getting executed. Um, that's pretty upsetting to me. Um, yeah, I didn't think for one second the the Afghan army was going to be able to to hold them off. Because <laughs> you think they just didn't care to do it, or they just weren't strong enough? Like they they had enough 
people, right? And plenty of equipment. So what, what were they lacking? Was it motivation? Motivation. Uh, I think they were scared shitless. They weren't, you know, backed by the U.S. military anymore. They didn't have the air support. Lack of leadership, uh, their government, everything. Interesting. Uh, Do you think the government was, like, the, the government such as it was, was it really just corrupt and just trying to steal as much American cash as they could and they never had any intention of actually trying to hold the line and, and hold off the Taliban once the U.S. pulled out? Um, I mean, there's definitely corruption. I mean, there's no doubt about that. Uh, I mean, I just don't think they have the will to fight for their own country, which is very disappointing. I mean, we put right. in so many years with these guys, and for them to lose their country that quick, to hand over, I don't know if you've seen photos, but there's, I don't know how many uh, uh, U.S. weapons that were handed over to the Taliban, right. including MATVs, MRAPs. I saw a photo of a Black Hawk. Um, yeah, I saw that picture. Drones. I mean, imagine if we had to go back to go fight the uh, the Taliban. Right now, they're they're a lot more yeah. equipped, right? Oh, one hundred percent. I mean, pretty scary stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that if we had stayed in a four months, six months, one year, ten years, like, is there any period of time in which this would have been different, or was it sort of like? it's not going to make any difference. So you might as well pull out regardless of how well it's handled. Like, is there, would it have been any different no, for any different I, period I of time? Think, I don't think so. No. Got it. No, I and, think uh, regardless of what we've done, I mean, or did without the U S presence, the presence there, just the Afghan army doesn't have the will to fight. So, right. So, so 10 more years wouldn't have made a difference. So like, why bother? Unless, you know, the, the Afghan army can get some fucking education and learn how to fly some planes. <laughs> right. Which they're not. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. I don't think they're going to be able to hold their country without air support. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about the same concept that you just brought up with regards to China and Taiwan. And I did a podcast about that. You know, there's, I, I have a lot of fear that China is going to try to take over Taiwan and that the U.S. gets pulled into that conflict. I mean, Taiwan's an ally, and we've said, or we've sort of hinted that we would defend them. But it raises the question of, like, if you want us to get involved and put American money and soldiers on the line, what's the minimum that we should demand from that country? Like, what what do they have to do to show us that they're worthy of our involvement? Like, do they have to have a conscription of every man in the country? Do they have to spend a certain amount of GDP on, you know, the military? Like what, what should we demand of someone else before we're willing to get involved? And um, you sort of raised that question with regards to Afghanistan, which I, I think was kind of interesting. Um, I mean, I think we just need a, a, an end goal for sure, uh, where we want to be by the end of the next war we're in where we start sending in teenagers and people that are in their 20s to go get killed. Hmm. I mean, that's a tough question. I don't know about that one. I'm sorry, but... No, it's it's, it's just an interesting one. I, I don't know that I have an answer. It's just a question I think about a bunch and, and um, something that I'm, I'm kind of curious about. Um, but in that whole perspective, uh, we would definitely be fighting a conventional force, uh, not right. just guerrilla warfare shit that we did here in, in Vietnam that's 
pretty fucking hard to to win. Especially, um, it's hard to win if if the other side is just more motivated, right? If it, mm-hmm. if they're on their home turf and they care more, how, how are you ever going to beat that? It just yeah. it seems impossible. Um, do you still have buddies who were there up until recently? I mean, presumably not there now, but like, do you still do you still talk to guys who were there? Is it a totally different cohort of people because you're in for a few years and so people are cycling in and out? Like, how does that work? No, I still got a few guys left. Uh, actually, people that are there in Kabul right now. Wow. In the 82nd. Um, but yeah, not too much. Probably three or four guys are still, still hanging out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I mean, that must be pretty wild, right? To be like the last boots on the ground there. I mean, thankfully, no Americans have been killed in the withdrawal. Like you, no matter what you see on TV, and maybe there's some vehicles, some guns, some helicopters, and that's that's bad. But like, it's pretty amazing so far from the perspective of have Americans died in the withdrawal? The answer yeah. is no, right? And that's good. Uh, so yeah, I don't believe any have, which is great. But I mean, I'm I'm just still upset about all the people that work right, with us all the allies, the Afghan forces, right, or the Afghan contractors that. You know, we should have had a game plan before we took everyone out. To and they got screwed. Them. Yep. Oh, they got screwed big time. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not only them getting killed, they're going in and killing their families. Terrible. Pretty disturbing. Why do, you, why do you think we were in, I know we talked about this a little bit the last time we spoke, but why do you think we were in Afghanistan in the first place? Like you, if I, I found if I asked 10 people, I get 10 different answers. But why do you think we were there? Um, I mean, I think we were there to prevent from another 9-11 to happen. I just think it got way out of hand once we defeated the Taliban. I think that should have been it. We stayed there since 20 years. We defeated the Taliban in two months. Why do you think we stayed those extra 19 years and 10 months? Was it, so, so, you know, I'll come back to the vaguely conspiratorial um, theory that I think about a lot, which is if you are leading the military, you have a lot more power and budget and relevance if we're at war than if we're not. And so Mm -hmm. there's this incentive to keep us at war just so that you can, you know, you have a lot more guys under your control and you're a lot more powerful. And, And by the way, all the contractors and and suppliers they're making a pretty penny off of it and so they're incentivized to see us stay at war as well is I, there, know. I mean there's no incredible? doubt it's a it's no doubt it's a money machine i mean war war makes people rich mm-hmm. um it's not saying that i agree or disagree with the afghan war i mean right but i mean there's definitely incentive to stay in in war no doubt about that there's this this thing I've read about, which is that the Afghan um, police chiefs, that the warlords, that they all have these young boys as like their sex slaves, basically, and yep. that they like kidnap boys. Is that a real thing? Is that something you ever encountered? Is it? Is this one of those things that's like getting blown up, or is this like a real thing? And there's like uh, young young boys and pedophilia everywhere. Uh, no, it's a real thing. Um, they're called chai boys. Pretty much the the most feminine uh, male in the family, or say, I mean, the, the Afghan police had them too in the group. Uh, they are pretty much cooking, cleaning, and 
I mean, I don't know how to put it, but Get, getting, getting fucked turned by out. dudes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, no, um, it's, they're definitely seen, seen my fair share of those guys. And did it ever happen on a U.S. military base? Is that a possibility? I mean, or I'm sure that... it has. Uh, right. I mean, I have never witnessed uh, Afghan army or police officers, you know, raping yeah. kids or anything like that. Right. But I'm, I'm 100% sure it happens all the right. time. I, mean... <laughs> I, read, I read an article about um, a special forces commander who spoke up about it because he was so yeah. horrified and I, lost yeah, his I job. Yeah, I know which one. Yeah, um, I know which one you're talking just, about. Just terrible. Uh, yeah. I, it's wild to me. You know, the funny thing is apparently this is like a well-known thing about Afghanistan and um, and they there's a joke, there's an old joke that is um, why do birds fly in circles over Kandahar? And the answer is because they're always covering their ass with one wing. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so um i mean that that, one, apparently sorry. yeah apparently that's <laughs> apparently that's like a known a known thing and it's you know i, I had no idea but apparently it's a it's a known thing um yeah. so all right last last question for you what what's your rank um like when so if i if i say i had an interview with jordan like who, how am i describing you i mean i guess you're just specialist Specialist. Okay. Um, that works. And, uh, what are you doing now? And did your experience in the army influence it in any way? Uh, no, not at all. I'm a okay. uh, city arborist in Oregon, uh, <laughs> completely different job. City arborist. Um, that's so you're like managing trees. Uh, yeah, we do city work, uh, city tree work and stuff like that. So that's like um, cutting down sick trees. Is that the uh, idea? Yeah, tree removals, tree pruning. Got it. Yep. So nothing, not not at all related to me. Uh, for now, I got right. some. I got some contracting jobs lined up that I might take. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Contracting for like the contractors that the Department of Defense hires. Is that the idea? Yeah, actually, I got an offer the other day to do um, um, security on cargo ships for out on this. Uh, right off the uh, Horn of Africa. For, oh, you know, cool. Keep, keep the, the pirates away, huh? <laughs> Shit, just Do watch Captain Phillips a couple times <laughs> before you go. So actually, let me ask you a question. Was that like a, a, a thing when you were in the army? Was there an exit strategy that guys had? Like, I just got to do my my two tours and then I know I can get a job with some contracting firm and I can either come back to Afghanistan, but make more money or like it was, was that like I mean, a yeah, known I mean, thing? I, yeah. I mean, all the time. I mean, I'd probably say 10 to 20% of all the dudes I served with are contracting right now making a shit ton of money. What, what is that even, what, what is a shit ton of money in this context? Like what, what does that compensation look like to go back to Afghanistan, but as a private contractor? Probably from 600 to a thousand bucks a day. And you do, you're usually two or three months deployments and then two months off, two months on, two months off. And where are those guys, like they're not staying on the same bases or are they staying on the same bases as uh, the, the Yeah, I mean, on my first deployment at my first outpost, we had a ex-Navy SEAL contractor, he, he was uh, setting up our, all of our security cameras and 
they also had like these blimps, these little blimps that would go up on a rope with a really uh, expensive camera up there. But he set up all that equipment for us and stuff like that. And he would just stay with you at the outpost and. Yeah, he got right. in firefights with us and everything. <laughs> wow. Now yeah. he's a Navy SEAL. Like you, you hear a lot about the Navy SEALs, right? Was he like particularly mm-hmm. more badass than anyone else that you came across? I mean, he was a cool dude, really smart. He was in, uh, I don't know exactly what they're called in the Navy SEALs, but pretty much communications, uh, intel, stuff like that. Uh, but I mean, he, 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 he never went out on patrols with us or anything like that. But I mean, when we were, we were getting shot at at our bases, he would, he would. He'd come out. He'd come out and help us. He loved and it. the the contracting <laughs> jobs, is there like an a pipeline? Like how do you know who to call, how to get those jobs? Like what is it just somebody puts you in touch with somebody else? Like what's the that that pipeline look like? Um I mean you can start your own company, uh, which a lot of my the guys I served with did. Wow. Um, okay. it's also who you know. I know a guy I served with his dad was a ex green beret and he has a multi-million dollar contracting company does work all all around the globe hmm. but i mean it's it's a big business yeah it certainly is and certainly those guys didn't want the war to end because then the paychecks dry up right yeah uh but i mean there's work all over the world not just afghanistan you got right sure. africa africa is probably the number one where a lot of contractors are going right now uh, mm-hmm um south america stuff like that is there still a lot of piracy off the horn of africa like you don't read about that anymore um i would say not as much since they started throwing in guys for uh you know ex-military guys on the cargo ships but still happens i mean if you're standing there with your uh with your m249 and you're you're on the deck of a ship like i, I don't know <laughs> yeah, i mean not gonna I, make their way up right I would hope not. Yep. <laughs> That's the idea, pretty, I guess. Uh, pretty hard to do. And then after I published it, I, I was sort of like the the premise of the podcast was it was time to get out. It was time to get out a really long time ago. And the only reason that we were there was, you know, for all this time was because there were guys who were incentivized and making money off of it, whether it's, you know, the, the guys making the vehicles, the guys, um, there's a lot of people who are making money off of it and they sort of kept us there longer than we should have. And then the other premise was we kind of screwed up the exit. Like it's good that no Americans died, but we really fucked over the Afghanis, the ones that were our, our allies and contractors and, and interpreters and stuff. And, um, and we should have done a better job by them. Um, so that was the premise of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, after I recorded it, I then was thinking to myself, you know, it's sort of weird how the media is often very, very pro President Biden, and mm-hmm. they seem to have like totally turned on him in this yeah, instance. Yeah, I've I've, no- I've noticed that. Yeah. Well, it makes me then wonder why did they turn on him? And my thinking is that they turned on him because the the guys who were the guys who were at the top of the military who are incentivized to have us at war forever because it you know gives them a lot more power and influence and and relevance they're the same guys that are going they're they're sort of it seems to me like they're trying to undermine the withdrawal even as recently as like this week they're trying to undermine it 
so that Biden would change his mind. And then they try to undermine it by going to the press and saying, yeah, you know, Biden's an asshole. He screwed this whole thing up and, and he really botched this. And and then the press, which, you know, for the last 20 years reported about how important it was that we stayed in Afghanistan. Of course, they're saying we should stay in Afghanistan. They're sort of covering their own asses. And mm-hmm. but it's fascinating to me that like when a group that's normally very pro one person is doing the opposite, you got to wonder like why and and what's up there. Yeah, I mean, so, there could be multiple different reasons, but yeah, I mean, I just noticed knows? that the other right. day. But yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, I guess we'll find out soon enough. This is incredible. Thank you. Um, thank you again for your service. And, um, and thanks for talking to me about this. Yeah, this is, uh, this is great. Me.